0: Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. When we last had the Premier League in our lives, Manchester City were on top of the table, Arsenal and United were close behind, and a pair of clubs were looking for new managers. Now, after the ninth match day of the season, City is still on top, Arsenal and Manchester United are still on their heels, but two new bosses have made their debuts. We'll get to Sam Allardyce's first match with Sunderland later in the show, but now, as I bring in my co-hosts, Lawrence McKenna and Karthik Krishnäuer, we're going to focus on the Premier League's new boyfriend, Jurgen Klopp. Liverpool hired the former Borussia Dortmund and Mainz boss over the break and saw him debut to a nil-nil draw at White Hart lane and lawrence although the result wasn't ideal klopp's fingerprints were all over his new team from the opening kickoff
1: absolutely well i mean that was part of the interesting thing was that people were wondering how much work could he do in just a few days and the fact was that people have been speaking all week about gegenpressing pressing or gig and pressing um and the impressive style with which Liverpool would play from that. And I think that excited a lot of people because people felt quite tired of what was going on with Brendan Rodgers. Um, but I think essentially what I mean, what I was interested in was, was Klopp was able to put his fingerprints all over this team because of the squad that's been assembled at Liverpool and the adaptability that they've very often shown under Brendan Rodgers if they showed a lack of application. And mm. the, he played a four three two one at the weekend. And, you know, a lot of people were very quick to point out that's a very unusual formation – but what I will point out is that a number of young players in this side who have developed under Brendan Rodgers. There are a number of uh, very intelligent players who, you know, were brought in by Brendan Rodgers and, and the transfer committee. A lot of players who'd learned to become more adaptable. Three at the back, you know, playing with a number of different ways in front of them. And I think that that is partly also down to Brendan Rodgers. So it's not, you know, it's not all. And you know, I mean, Sam Allardyce will be the first one to tell you this was essentially, excuse me, essentially Brendan Rodgers coming out with this win because Rafa Benitez <laughs> didn't win the Champions League
0: yeah a lot of defense defenders of Brendan Rodgers coming from the same corners that Brendan Rodgers probably is in right now uh, Kartik but you and I probably were I guess justifiably excited just like everybody else we're starting to get to the point where we we're making fun of the excitement around Jurgen Klopp but this was a really significant addition for the Premier League and over those first 20 or 25 minutes at White Hart Lane before Liverpool's players started to wilt a little bit I did still feel that excitement
2: yeah, I felt the excitement. I mean, part of it, I think, is because the Premier League itself uh, doesn't have many genuine stars, playing stars. Uh, maybe one genuine world-class player in the league, in my opinion, and now Ooh. Alexis Sanchez. Maybe maybe a second in David Silva, but it's not. The, the, the top stars. Uh, well, okay, I always forget goalkeepers. Yes, yes, yes De Gea yeah. is, is world-class, no question. But uh, I think the Premier League has less... Uh, less legitimate stars than than uh, the, the Bundesliga, the uh, the La Liga, or uh, or Liga 1. Uh, and Liga one they're all on one team. But so uh, we're looking for coaches to provide that excitement and the history of clubs and, and the pageantry around clubs, and it does it quite frankly because the league is still more exciting than those leagues I mentioned. Even though those leagues have all the world class stars, but Klopp is a genuine. Character. He's a genuine superstar of world football, uh, not only for the for the way his teams entertain, but because of his own demeanor. And we're real excited to have him in England. And I and I felt that excitement. I mean, I I passed on watching Frank Lampard, David Villa, Kaká and Andrea Pirlo in person in order. Up just to watch Jurgen Klopp on television. That tells you how ex- excited personally I
0: was for this game. Yeah, England has always, so so- as a culture, always been really close to, really quick to adopt kind of the cult of the manager. I think managers in England are revered more than not in just in any other um, league, any other sport. I think that was one of the things when I really started following the Premier League that was just so mind-boggling to me, how much Everybody leans on every single word the manager says, And but Lawrence, this was beyond words. I think you saw a lot of stats from Sky note that this was the first time that Tottenham had been outrun at all this year. James Milner covered 13 kilometers, the person who was really responsible for the flexibility of that formation we saw on Saturday. And as a result, even though Jurgen Klopp didn't get three points, this still felt like Liverpool had made some some clear, at least to the eye, improvements over the short time Klopp has been at the club.
1: Yeah, very good point. Um, Although, I mean, Kristen Hennig who used to be on this podcast, made the joke to me that it was probably just minulator in shuttle runs in the the penalty box that meant (laughs) this team had run 10K further. Um, What I would say is, though, uh, with Klopp, I mean, like you say, we're very quick to uh, buy into the mysticism. That somewhat takes away from some of the analysis. Mm. Um, And it's... Jurgen Klopp is not, um, uh, you know, he's not... um, who's the guy who, who coached the, the bulls when jordan was there uh
0: um, phil jackson
1: phil ja- he's not phil jackson but sometimes i feel like phil jackson gets a very light analysis when coming to a new team because he's phil jackson do you know what i mean and i feel a mm. little bit like it's similar with jürgen klopp here because it's like he's just a taller jürgen klopp essentially isn't he um and <laughs> that, that's what i'm saying is that uh, he got he, he everything is now mysticized about about klopp so it's you know Klopp didn't just go out to look at the match he didn't just go out to look at the pitch pre-game he went out to survey the turf he didn't just talk to the players <laughs> he gave the ultimate pep talk to uh, Divock Origi you know he he was he wasn't just at the sideline you know if Brendan Rodgers shouted something on the sideline that was just Brendan Rodgers shouting something this was Jurgen Klopp shouting something here yeah. guys do you know what i mean yeah, and that's what annoys me a little bit. Is that this week I had callers on another show where we do a live call in, and uh, they were sort of they were calling in and just going, "I just want to talk about Klopp." And I was like, "Yeah, but what about the way that Lalana pushed here?" And they were like, "Yeah, I don't know what you mean." I think they, he did you know, a really,
0: yeah, I think he did a really good job of highlighting where the excitement for Klopp stops and kind of the forced narrative begins when you do get a man just walking out on the pitch before the game and he's serving instead of just going through his normal preparations. But Kartik, I think uh, Lawrence did a good job of transitioning us into actually talking about the game. But we can still keep it Klopp centric. He is the story of the week. His debut oh, is yeah. the story of the week. And for me, and I think for a lot of people, it was about how individual players were going to fit into what Klopp does. And I think we got a, a good idea, at least a good idea for as much of an idea we can get over 90 minutes. I, I was focused on both the players that I thought would adapt well. Uh, Emery Chan... Daniel Klein, Daniel Sturridge, who didn't play. And I really thought Adam Lallana would adapt well to the system, even though I didn't imagine he would be playing in a two behind a one, which we can talk about that. And then James James Milner played better than I thought he, he would. Uh, we haven't seen Jordan Henderson yet or uh, Christian Benteke, two other people that I thought maybe would... Maybe not struggle in the case of Henderson, but um, his skills aren't a perfect fit. And Martin Skrull is the other player that I'm worried about. What about you in general from what we saw against Spurs? Which players do you think look like they're good fits? Which players uh, maybe do you have concerns with?
2: Well, we didn't see Benteke. I don't think he's going to fit this style or system at all. I I think he's... uh, he's probably going to have a short Anfield career uh, based on, just based on his skill set. But So we didn't see him. I thought Origi uh, was very good, but we knew Origi was a player, uh, other than his finishing, was very good. We know Origi's a player that Klopp liked because that's the one guy on this Liverpool side we know he tried to sign to Dortmund. So that's, that is one player he was familiar with and, and he would like and, and can play the way he wants to play. I think Milner was very good in this game. That we kind of expected. Uh, maybe not quick enough in some people's minds for a Klopp system, but he will do the running. Mm-hmm. I can attest to that as, as uh, someone who watched him for five seasons with Manchester City. I thought Emre Sean looked comfortable, partly because he was just back in his natural role and he's been shuttled all over the pitch by Brendan Rodgers and by Yogi Lowe uh, the last uh, uh, last couple months for uh, both club and country. A player I was not pleased with was Philippe Coutinho. He didn't look comfortable mm-hmm. in that role, that duel of... of whole role or whatever you want to call it behind a uh, uh, pairing with Lalana, uh, He, I didn't see the kind of energy I expected from him. I yeah. thought some of his touches were kind of questionable. I think he may have been confused by the setup. We'll have to continue to watch him as we go forward.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm holding back on Coutinho because for the last couple of weeks, I've had so many Liverpool fans come to me and just like, "Oh, you clearly don't know Felipe Coutinho. He's one of the hardest workers in the team, and he'll he'll adapt immediately." And you're saying he's not as good as Shinji Kagawa, which I never said. I just said he's a different player than Shinji Kagawa was at Dortmund. And well, don't I, say I, it,
1: Richard. Don't be a dick. Come on. Well, all, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, with Coutinho, we saw a different skill set from Coutinho that maybe people, Liverpool have fallen in love with Coutinho, which is the, right. you know, he's a little magician, you know, and for that reason, you know, magicians aren't very physical people, always. <laughs> um, but the, the point would be um, that he actually put his body between a couple of people I mean, yeah. and surprised, I think, Liverpool fans. Yeah, no, I, And I, I think I, that's I, maybe the problem is that actually what people are thinking is people, are, that Klopp isn't, some, like, he's literally got this system and he goes, right, who's going to fit into it? Yeah. And who doesn't? And I think actually the point would be here, there's going to be a number, you know, this is somewhat of a halfway house of a game, which is why I'd imagine Spurs were disappointed because, you know, Liverpool were essentially ripe for the taking, having just a few days of tactics from a very, you know, a very good coach, but still the point would be there that, Klopp is a good enough coach to recognize what he can play. No, that's why I, they're playing... I, I, the yeah, team. and
0: I, I agree with you. I, that's why I'm holding back on Coutinho. I don't think he's yes. a, a, a great fit or a poor fit. I think he's just... He's somebody that Klopp can help mold. And I think it I is kind of... I'm
1: to your point. I'm not, I don't think I'm arguing against it. Yeah, him, yeah. I think... Know. But it's I think it is kind it
0: of me. I think it is kind of a wake-up call, because as you alluded, Liverpool fans have come to cherish Felipe Coutinho, because he's been a very good player for them. But it is kind of a, a reminder that the talent level at Liverpool is at a certain place right now, and there aren't any true world-class players in that team. And as a result, you're not going to have people that are just going to naturally, like a fish to water, become spectacular. It's going to take a little bit of time, and maybe Coutinho will be a spectacular player after a but, little bit of time. I, I think that I, I, it's only 90 minutes so far.
1: I do think that's a bit of a worry for Liverpool is that actually Liverpool have become a club who have gotten very used to a certain kind of mentality. And it's not the kind it's not actually a very successful mentality in that sense. Mm. Um, And I think especially in the 90s, it was Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Rap who summed it up perfectly for me when I made a Liverpool documentary. He said Liverpool were conservative with a small C and that applied to their business and sometimes what happened on the pitch. And it meant that um, very often they put all of their hope on young people who were good instead of everything Mm. else because they didn't know what else they could... There was nothing for them to grasp onto. And it seems as if Klopp has given them something else that they can maybe... Like a vine they can grasp onto now, which can take them away from that. But it's very difficult to let go of the previous one.
0: Yeah, but as you allude, it could be a positive. I want to... Before we um, go into our read of the results, I want to talk to you a little bit, Lawrence, because before saturday's match Uh, and a couple of times uh even in speculating when jurgen klopp might come in you had noted that liverpool is not that far back of fourth place and bringing somebody like klopp in might be just what you need to take a a pretty deep and reasonably talented squad and compete for that last champions league spot has your view at all change it changes probably the wrong word it is only 90 minutes but how has your view been informed after that 90 minutes
1: good question um I, in, in terms of Klopp, it's, it's probably stayed the same. In terms of the Liverpool team, I was very buoyed by the way that they reacted to what Klopp's done over the past week. Mm-hmm. I think you're right in the new boyfriend thing that there, are, there should always be sceptical questions asked. And I think my view as a football fan recently has been that a lot of people in Britain look to set football fans up directly against each other. Talksport goes, a United mm-hmm. fan said this which Liverpool fan's going to call in and tell him he's a dick Mm. or, you know, and I think actually what I've realized more recently is a lot of football fans need to be standing shoulder to shoulder and sort of going, hold on, what's going on at your club here? Like Liverpool fans need to be standing with Manchester United fans and Liverpool fans shouldn't be defensive. If someone's saying that's not good enough or this Mm. isn't very good. And so I think what needs to happen at Liverpool is that uh, they need to look at themselves in context of the Premier League and look, they probably are the maybe the fifth best team this season. Uh, maybe the sixth best team behind Spurs, because but Spurs then proven maybe they were not. So I think there's a lot of confidence, but within context of the league, look at the other results this weekend, and maybe you're seeing how far Liverpool are behind those guys.
0: Hmm. Well, Clark will take car- charge of his second game with Liverpool on Thursday when Russia's Rubin Kazan arrive at Anfield in Europa League. And just a small reminder, Klopp's previous team, Borussia Dortmund, is in that competition, perhaps something to look forward to down the road. But on England's shores, there were eight other matches this weekend. On Saturday at Stamford Bridge, Diego Costa scored once and caused a second-half own goal. After a number of lineup changes, Jose Mourinho got Chelsea back into the win column with a 2-0 victory over visiting Aston Villa. At Selhurst Park, the first-half dismissal of Dwight Gale came good for West Ham late in the second half when goals by Manuel Lanzini and Dimitri Payet broke a 1-1 tie, giving the Hammers a 3-1 derby win over Crystal Palace. Manchester United gave one of their most impressive performances of the season, scoring three goals in the first 62 minutes at Goodison Park to take a 3-0 win over Everton. League-leading Manchester City were without Sergio Aguero, David Silva, and Vincent Company, and still cruised to a 5-1 win over Bournemouth. Raheem Sterling had a first-half hat-trick at the Etihad. Southampton got goals from Jose Fonte and Virgil van Dyke to take a 2-0 lead into halftime at St. Mary's, but a second-half brace from Jamie Vardy, the second goal coming at stoppage time, gave Leicester another comeback result, a 2-2 draw. Sam Allardyce's debut at, was the least watchable match of the weekend, with West Brom breaking through against the run-of-play in the second half to post a 1-0 win over Sunderland at the Hawthorns and Arsenal. Outlasted a dogged hour from Watford, broke through with three goals in 12 minutes at Vicarage Road, posting a 3-0 win on the road. On Sunday, six shots on target, six goals for Newcastle, who got their first win of the season thanks to four goals for Jorginho Winaldom. 6-2 was the final against Norwich at St. James's Park. As for the table, Manchester City has a two point lead over Arsenal and Manchester United. West Ham's win keeps them fourth, with Leicester and Crystal Palace close behind. Perhaps the more telling news is at the bottom of the table, though, where Newcastle climbed from 20th to 18th, now only two points from safety. Aston Villa is next, with only four points from nine games, while Sunderland is the last winless team of the Premier League, and at the bottom of the table. When we come back, we'll focus on the games at the Etihad, Vicarage Road, and Goodison Park. But right now, let's talk about our sponsor. You know, Rabble.tv has been our sponsor since I returned to the show. And Rabble.tv is actually a big part of this show's life. Uh, we have one person here who, just this past week, did two things with Rabble TV associated with World Soccer Talk. I think he did a couple of other things um, associated with his own site. Kartik, you called the U.S. Costa Rica game on Tuesday. You also did your Divers and Cheats show on Thursday. Um, you tend to have a pretty, pretty busy weekly life with Rabble.tv.
2: Yeah, I'm. A, I have something going on with Rabble. It seems every day. I've got, it. it obviously. This week was interesting because we had the international break and this game, uh, this U.S.-Costa Rica game, which I called with Matt Lichtenstein, former member of our podcast team, and of Divers and Cheats, where we discussed the MLS's role in the U.S. national team setup. Has the MLS become a detriment to the United States national team, both in the sense that are, are, are players not getting the right tactical training, and are they not fit enough to play for the U.S. national team, and the flip side, has MLS become such a strong and competitive league that... It's helping the neighboring CONCACAF countries who have hmm. their players in MLS and they're getting better and they're yeah. competing hard with the United States uh, and they're beating the United States often because they have players playing at a high level in Major League Soccer. So discuss that. As you said, I have my own stuff going on uh, related to, to the second division in our country, North American Soccer League, where I cover the four Laurel Strikers and Tampa Bay Rowdies on Rabble regularly. But it's a great platform. And anytime you uh, want to call a game, if you don't like what Ray Hudson's doing uh, as we speak, as we're recording uh, on the inter- Uh, Juve Darby you could, you could you could start a Rabble broadcast and do your own job I know a lot of people don't like Ray Hudson and in many cases in these sorts of games I would like to listen to someone on Rabble who knows the two clubs very well so it would be great
0: well Kartik you're obviously making good use of Rabble.tv if you follow Kartik on Twitter you know exactly when he's going to uh, have an alternative broadcast or his actual show for you but he's not the only one that's making use of the product we have a number of people within the world soccer top family that use Rabble.tv on a regular basis, which is why we're recommending the service to you. Now, what is it exactly? Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and it, the way it works is really simple. All you have to do is tune into your game, but then press the mute button on your television or in your browser, then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. Or better yet, you can create your own broadcast, call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your computer's microphone. You can listen to a broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. Sign up today at rabble.tv, where it's your team and it's your call. Gentlemen, Liverpool was the big story of the weekend, but with everybody back in action, of course, there is going to be some focus at the top of the table where even though Manchester City has been the focus team this year, it was relatively tight coming into the weekend. City, Arsenal, Manchester United are all within two points of each other. Let's talk about those three teams this segment. Kartik, uh, we mentioned that City still without so many players, even though Pablo Zabaleta returned this weekend. Uh, was looked kind of like his typical impactful self, but they were still without... Sergio Aguero is going to be without him for some time. David Silva, who's on the verge of coming back, Vincent Kompany actually probably will play in Champions League. I think um, Manuel Pellegrini saying he mostly held him out because he hadn't had a full week of training. Five to one victory in this one, Kartik. What stood out to you?
2: Well, on, on company, uh, real quickly, Pellegrini was very unhappy with Mark Wilmot's. Yeah, I Delta think he should be team. too. Yeah, right. So uh, I think he he almost held company out to prove a point, saying you can't you can't play a guy, start a guy. In a game you don't have to win, although I guess Belgium was playing to win because they wanted this 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 farcical FIFA number one ranking. That, uh, not that I'm saying Belgium as farcical, yeah. but the FIFA rankings are farcical. So that's why they played him. And uh, obviously uh, he, he, he came back without a full week of training and isn't fully fit, so he didn't play. But I, I think Zavaleta's return was very, very important uh, down that right side, and he, and he combined well with with. City's attacking players, Sonia shifted to the left where Kolarov got injured in national team duty for Serbia, and Gail Klici is still not fully fit. So Sonia showed he could play on the left side also, which, which gives City some more options because the plan coming into the season for Pellegrini was to use Bobby and Delft at times at left back. And the times when Delf could have been helpful at left back have already presented themselves, but he 's been injured, so Sonia being tried there worked, at least in this game, so that was that was uh, important and obviously I think the uh, the, the most uh, critical thing was that Wilford Bonet got going with uh, with a couple mm. of goals and he looked good and, and his movement was good, and he contributed to uh, sterling 's performance of uh, which uh, to me wasn't a surprise. Sterling has done everything well this season other than finish, and we knew he would start finishing at some point, and he did in this game.
0: Yeah, Boney had two goals. Sterling had three. Some other really good performances, you talked about Pablo Zabaleta. Jesus Navas had an embarrassing moment before halftime, which eventually turned into Raheem Sterling goal, but he and Zabaleta did some good things down the right side. Kevin De Bruyne had a really nice strike. That <laughs> can, I, can
2: I just jump in for a yeah. I, this is This is a shout-out to all the City fans who were listening, okay? You guys you guys have some strange expectation for Jesus Navas and I see so much critique criticism of him on Twitter and I never see any praise for the things he does and He is an important player in this side. And if Manchester City are going to win the title, I'm sorry, this is kind of a moment of personal privilege. You guys are going to have to back off the guy and just appreciate what he does and what he brings and how, when things aren't going well often in matches, he's the guy that can run at defenders, draw corners, draw set-piece opportunities, and he has an important role to play. So just because he's a terrible finisher doesn't mean he doesn't belong in this side.
0: Mm. Sorry. I just
1: felt like I had to say that.
0: Lawrence, let's bring you in. Let's get some perspective from you on this because the one thing that it...
1: I hate who's Jesus Navas. I'll say that (laughs)
0: Well, Yeah, I don't think it's really safe to have that opinion right now. Uh, The one thing that really really dawned on me when I was watching this game is that in the Premier League this year, maybe it's because of the parity of the league, we really don't see very many dominant performances from teams. Even when Arsenal went to Leicester a couple weeks ago, 1-5-2, it was more of a surge that came throughout the game wasn't kind of an end-to-end dominance and in this one even though Bournemouth started brightly and had some moments where City's defense looked a Mangala influence let's just call it that uh I this was a rare dominant this is a team that looks like a champion performance at least in my eyes
1: yeah but I guess City the only team that have really put in that performance so far this season Um,
0: Yeah, I can't think of of another one. I I bring this up because we're going to talk about this a little bit with Manchester United later, who had a very bright start at Goodison. But even that one, Manchester United came out of halftime, couldn't maintain the momentum. City, we've seen this four or five times this year, and pretty much when their squad is healthy, and they didn't have a very healthy squad this weekend, they have been the only team that's really looked like a champion so far to me.
1: I'd love to put that down to the tactical diversity of the league. Uh, But maybe I might put it down to the tactical. It's not. Not ineptitude, the tactical experimentation that a lot of managers possibly go through, because mm. I'm, I think a lot of people don't quite know how to match their teams up against all these different sides a few years ago, you could pretty much have gone, "Are they going to play four, five one yeah, they're going to play four, five one will look more like a four three three when they're attacking at times, <laughs> and that would have been the Premier League in a nutshell and if someone played two up top, people would have said, "What's Tony Pulis doing um and now that's not the case anymore. And I think it leads to more interesting results like this. Uh, it makes it harder to dominate the game, like you say. Um, but I also think it it can lead to some false, uh, not conclusions, but it, mm. it does. Lead to, can we just say it leads to inconsistent tactical inconsistencies
0: yeah, or analytical guess- inconsistencies too, on our part?
1: Well, on both, but I oh, think yeah, that's, yeah. is that it's almost. I mean, if there was such a, a navel-gazing thing as the media, then you know <laughs> we probably have a show where we had a podcast about the other podcast and how good the podcast had been analysing the football of the weekend. Um,
0: <laughs> so you haven't seen my podcast power rankings, then I. I it. I've
1: never. I don't follow Chard on Twitter, um, <laughs> but the but my point of that w- would be that there is a you know that that's the problem is that it's. There is a tactical diversity to the league, in inverted commas, and because of that tactical diversity, we see less domination like that, whereas a few years ago, you would have seen um, you know, managers such as Rafa Benitez and Jose Mourinho were seen as dominant characters mm. and um, dominant tactical managers. And now those things are not related in the same way, I don't
0: think. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think there is kind of an evolution there. Uh, much in the same way there's been an evolution about somebody like Arsene Wenger, who is no longer looked at as a tactical marvel, or at least not talked about as a tactical mind, the same it's way it, it, he, he was in his first decade in the Liga. we'll talk
1: about dusting him off though, and I don't I, know, I, I guess it's just they, they you know, maybe, we, we maybe talk about this. That, but, we talk about yeah. this
0: every podcast though is that Arsenal is so inconsistent so up and down that we end up recycling the narratives from 10 years ago, recycling the narratives from four years ago, depending on whether they've had a good day or a bad day. So I guess I'll ask you, Lawrence, whether uh, what we saw on Saturday was a good day or a bad day. I think it's kind of in between. I think that Watford is a very good team, or at least a very difficult team to play as they showed over the first half hour. But then over a 13-minute okay. stretch, Arsenal scored three goals, looked very good. And I don't think you can call this the kind of complete performance that maybe I was trying to describe uh, ascribe to City, but I still think this is a very good result. Uh, Arsenal basically showed that they were able to uh, weather a very determined team and at the end, post a very comfortable victory.
1: Yeah, it looks a lot more comfortable when you look at the stats. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, obviously they had a lot more possession away from home, which is always positive for them. I Mm -hmm. think they had 64% of that possession. Um, But in terms of the other things, I think uh, in in terms of their shots, they were very equal, which I think is what you're showing. Is If we maybe look at the highlights, it looks much closer. But I think Arsene Wenger will always talk to you about the nuances of those things and say how he felt Arsenal were always in control of the game in that sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the more important thing, is if we analyze from Arsenal's perspective, I think it was a great... Well, not great, but it was a good game. Yeah, you know? it's, a, str- it's um, a strong
0: three points, right? This A 3 nothing victory on the road against a team that has been one of the better defensive teams in the league, I think you have to take that.
1: Exactly. Um, but I, what I'd also say is, uh, when, when looking at uh, the, the fact that, you know, Watford haven't been fantastic recently um you're you're probably saying, "Okay, three nil, just take it like you say mm-hmm. but um what what else what are you supposed to add to that and the, the, what you would add to that therefore are there's still more to be improved on. Mm -hmm. at Arsenal in terms of how efficient they are.
0: Yeah, it wasn't one of Watford's best performances. I thought in this one, they were carried more by individuals than we have seen to this point this year. Uh, Specifically, I thought Etienne Capoue was very influential in the middle of the park, and Troy Deeney's work in the first half was just marveled on by the announcers and rightly so. Kartik, I want to ask you about your impressions about Arsenal because you're somebody that I think has been shown throughout our podcast to be very tuned into Arsenal, very observant, uh, and at this point very aware of kind of the inconsistencies, the very very high peaks, the low valleys of their plays. So where would you put Saturday's performance on that kind of spectrum?
2: I guess somewhere in between. I, I didn't like what we saw in the first half, and I thought Kapo really bossed it and actually had an Arsenal fan last night. Uh, uh, PR director for the 4 Laurel Strikers, Steven Bernasconi, who watches Arsenal as intently as he watches the team he works for. Tell me, what, what happened to the Kapoo that we spurs that was so inept in central midfield I mean, mm. he dominated our guys and i agree with that i thought he was the best player in the first half uh, troy dini was very good going forward second half i thought watford were good until that first goal and yeah. then it just kind of all came apart but uh, so i guess the thing we can say for arsenal is in games where they're not playing well away from home against teams that are tough to break down uh, they were able to get a result and, and and a decisive looking one at that so that's a positive sign but again it was uh Classic Arsenal letdown game. Now, that having been said, we're coming off an international break. They just beat United 3-0, and they've got Bayern this week, so maybe that's that's what it was.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the Champions League games at the end of the show, but speaking of 3-0 results, speaking of Manchester United, uh, the Everton-Manchester United game is one that we highlighted in the preview podcast as a litmus test for both teams. Uh, so much uncertainty around each of them, Manchester United's inconsistent form, Everton not knowing if they really are going to challenge for the top four, and Kartik, in that sense, I think we did learn a lot about each of these teams. Manchester United, for the first 45-60 minutes, were as good as I think we seen them this year we can talk about why Uh, louis van hall made a number of significant changes and then everton just i don't know if they just didn't look prepared or maybe louis van hall the changes that he made kind of left roberto martinez's team confused but they certainly didn't seem to have even a toehold in the game until 20-25 minutes in when they were already down 2-0 yeah
2: and and I, i i couldn't get it because i thought uh there was big news in the morning, Howard Kendall, who uh, is actually one of my favorite managers, uh, came to Manchester City for a year one of the many links between Everton and Manchester city brought Peter Reed with him from Everton and Peter Reed helped build a good Manchester city club after Howard Kendall decided to go back to Everton a year later uh, had passed away. And, and I thought that would give everybody good mm-hmm. as a lift. It would give uh, everybody uh, a, a associated with Everton and Manchester city, those two clubs who both had pregame pre-match ceremonies, a lift. In fact, it, it seemed to do the other, the opposite to Everton. They, they were deflated. They looked out of sorts. They looked tactically naive. And I, I thought they were just awful. And this is another example of, of to me, of Martinez getting it really wrong mm-hmm. in a big game like this. One, one quick thing I would state is that Anthony Martial, I thought, was fantastic in this match. Uh, he won Player of the Month, something I think was uh, uh, not deserved lot this past <laughs> month on the Premier League. I think that that should have gone to Jamie Vardy, hands mm-hmm. down. Uh, but uh, he, he certainly proved himself in this game in a big atmosphere away from home. In a game where United historically have had a lot of trouble They Fergie never used to beat Moyes in those games, which part of the reason Moyes got the United job.
1: It was three, wasn't it three seasons in a row there where they didn't do very well? There was a long time where United hadn't mm-hmm. done very well yeah. and then even more, I think I actually spoke to a United fan today and he said um, it, the atmosphere at Goodison seemed similar to the time when at Old Trafford they were remembering the Busby Babes um, uh, oh, So That was you know, a game
2: against Man City, I remember that well and that was pre-takeover Manchester City and we went into yes. Old Crawford and beat them badly yes. because it exactly. was a subdued, kind of somber day. Mm. He ben said he remembered. got a goal right off the bat and it, exactly.
1: it was done. And he said he remembered it felt a very similar vibe to that. And it was one of the very few times I've actually thought a Manchester United fan looked sympathetic. But um, it was... It was a, a, an interesting thing to hear that he would he would go as far as to say that because it was uh, I, I think you know it looked it, essentially you were right and what you were saying is that it looked as if Everton let themselves down and mm-hmm. that's one thing I definitely put across Merseyside right now is that there's worries um, about the tactical adaptability of their managers maybe
0: yeah it, um, it seemed like that as much. Uh, as we were concerned that Van Hall had gotten it wrong at the Emirates it seemed like he very much got it right in this one he moved Rooney up to the striker position pushed Martial out wide he moved Andre Herrera into the starting lineup he was very influential his energy in the middle of the park above Schneiderlin and Schweinsteiger uh, in deeper midfield roles Juan Mata pinching in very narrowly a lot of times they were outnumbering Everton 4-5-2 in midfield as Ross Barkley still very young seemed to not be able to adapt and find a way to influence the game. Uh, Lawrence, we kind of alluded to Manchester United's play when we were talking about uh, Manchester City, the dominance they had over the whole game. You know, throughout the first 30, maybe even 45 minutes of this one, I looked at this Manchester United team and said, whew, this now looks like a team that could challenge for a title. Maybe maybe I was overreacting to that small window, but for me, this was as impressive as we've seen Manchester United this year.
1: Yeah, uh, I think in in relative terms, it it certainly was. Um, I think they got the midfield shape right, like you say. But I also feel like they were allowed that midfield midfield dominance. There's Um, only so
0: much uh, Barry and McCarthy can do when they're just so outnumbered.
1: Well, exactly. And One thing I am interested in from both of you guys is the best positions to play the likes of Barkley and also then the best positions to play the likes of Rooney as well. Mm. Because there was an interesting conversation this week on ITV, which is a rare thing to say in England. Um, But they said, (laughs) uh, where does Barkley play best? You know, is he a totty number 10? Is he a badger number 10? Is he a, uh, you know, is he a, a Wayne Rooney number 10?
0: Yeah, I actually have no idea. You know, there was the middle of this week, Roberto Martinez making the case to the public that Barkley needs to be a all-time starter. But Kartik, to me, this match showed that Barkley, even though he was more influential in the second half, can still be taken advantage of in that he he didn't have an influence in the game. He didn't make himself a factor in that first half. And so when you see games like this, you wonder what Ross Barkley can do when he's without the ball. And even when he's with the ball, I, I think that he's more... I think he's more, still more of a player of moments and not a player to set tempo. And that's why I wonder yeah. if we're still like two or three years away from Ross Barkley being a player you can truly build a team around.
2: Yeah, our mutual friend, Richard, uh, Neil Blackman, who follows Everton very closely, he, he likes Barkley in this sort of uh, withdrawn hole, uh, role in the hole behind the lone striker, which mm-hmm. in, in this case would be Lukaku, and a guy who can pop up in different different areas, attacking areas. But to me, again, that's a guy, just as you outlined, that doesn't set tempo, doesn't set pace, but is a man of moments. And he has some spectacular moments, but he's not Wayne Rooney. I mean, we, the comparisons have been obvious to Rooney because of the Everton connection, and the, the, yeah. the Scouser connection. But he's not hes not that kind of player. He's not going to dictate tempo or pace or, or, or necessarily run at guys uh, from that kind of number 10 position. So he's a guy who needs good service, who needs, to, he, who needs to make the right runs and find, find the right spaces, or, or at times just pick up rebounds. Or if, And if a, a winger cuts inside, we know Everton has a, a, a glut of wingers. Uh, it was Aaron Lennon who started in this game, which I'm somewhat surprised mm-hmm. me. But yeah. when that winger cuts inside, uh, uh, Barkley can make a run off of the winger and get himself into space and, and, and take a shot on goal. Those are the sorts of things he does well. But as far as being a guy who dictates the pace – and tempo of a match, he's not there. And this leaves uh, the guys like McCarthy and uh, Besic when he's fit, Gareth Barry, uh, Naismith. uh, It leaves them doing a whole lot more than they might uh, otherwise have to do.
0: Yeah, and it leaves them as that team that is so much better on the counter and not as a team that can go against teams that'll sit back and force you to break them down because they're left with really more reliant on players like Kone or these other players that we've seen step up and have moments, whereas Barkley's best moments have come on the counter. Lawrence, I cut you off. Go ahead.
1: I'm, well, I, I'm, I, I keep trying to cut you off. Um, sorry, I, I think the, the that's part of this generation of footballers is that actually they're, I, I, you know, they're not stuck between two two generations, but hmm. the emphasis is so much on the system. Um, and, you know, the fact that they have to play into that. And I don't think that's always to the player's detriment. I think it's when they understand that, then that very often becomes one of their greatest um, things. Like, we, you know, we look at Meza Ozil, who set the record this weekend for the most assists in Europe, I think it was, and that was ahead of a number, another great number 10 in Raquel May. And we're looking at a really dominant number 10 there against someone who's so constantly lamented for the fact that he floats in and out of games. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to be said for what we see from Barclay and talk about him as a player of moments. And I can sense it in your voice when you say that. That isn't necessarily what you consider to be a positive for him or a positive mm. for the team, maybe. Yeah, But well, I think what yeah. we are stuck with, and I think maybe you're right to do that. I would probably feel the same way. But what what we are stuck with is a generation where when things aren't quite clicking then we, we don't see a very strong performance from them at all. And I think sometimes that's a real problem in the Premier League mm. because it can lead to less entertainment and possibly a poorer match because of it. And I think a 3-0 game, whilst exciting for United fans, is probably a, a poorer match overall.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of players who are players in moments. At least they have those moments. Uh, for most players, they can only dream of the best moments that Ross Barkley has uh, seemingly automatically. But, but that's, the that's to the
1: detriment to some people. Like, mm. I mean, personally, well, you, mentioned, about you mentioned, mentioned Gerrard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, think about Steven Gerrard in this Liverpool team now. If a young Steven Gerrard was coming through in this Liverpool team, I wonder the difference yeah. in, in Steven Gerrard now. That's and true. you you think how many times would he trade the moments he had for the silverware that could have been if he was playing with an system which always benefited him?
0: Mm. Now that's a very interesting dichotomy there. I hadn't really thought about it before. Um, Let's go ahead and take our first trip to Europe and talk about the weekend's biggest game, which, as tradition dictates, kicked off as we started recording. Uh, Inter and Juventus were waging the season's first Derby d'Italia as we speak, Uh, but but you don't have to wait for us to finish talking. You're probably listening to us at the point where highlights are available. Go and check that out. It was nil-nil in the middle of the first half as we hit record. Elsewhere in Italy, though, Fiorentina was handed its second loss of the year with a 2-1 defeat at Napoli, a result that allowed Roma to move within a point of the top after their 3-1 win at Empoli on Saturday. Of course, what I just said becomes irrelevant if Inter wins, they go to the top of the table, pushing the Giallo Rossi down a little bit more. Uh, But let's move to a league where we do know the results, Germany, where Bayern Munich got an early goal from Thomas Müller at Werder Bremen and held out for a 1-0 win. Bayern is now perfect through nine rounds, a record for them. They've scored 29 times, they've only allowed four goals, and they have a seven-point lead on Borussia Dortmund, who got back into the win column with a 2-0 victory on Friday at Mainz, something of a welcome back jurgen Klopp derby there. The only thing, other thing I wanted to talk about in Germany is Borussia Mönchengladbach, who saw Lucien Favre resign a month ago, and since then they av- haven't lost a game in league. They've, they scored five times at Frankfurt on Saturday, a 5-1 win, and are now in 10th place after their fourth win in a row. They were at the bottom of the table once, when Favre left. It's not good news for Juventus. Juventus is starting their Champions League back-to-back with Die this week. Uh, But as far as elsewhere this weekend, gentlemen, there were a number of standout performers in the Premier League. Alas, we're only allowed to pick one for our Player of the Week. But Lawrence, that doesn't mean that you can't go ahead and mention every player that you thought deserved a little bit of consideration. Who stood out to you this weekend?
1: It's like that, is it? It is like that, yes. Uh, My honorable mentions yet again. The nuance of my my play is taken away because you want me to be a man of moments. (laughs) Um, Sterling is going to be my Player of the Week here, Richard. Okay, um, because uh, part of me wonders. Good God, wouldn't it be great to have Sterling in this Liverpool team with Jurgen <laughs> Klopp? Thirty-eight um, minute
0: mark. That's what, that's. I I thought thirty-two around is when you would say that because that's yeah. definitely what I was thinking this weekend too. Geez, what Jurgen Klopp would do with Raheem Sterling?
1: Well, yeah, and what Raheem Sterling would do with the Jurgen Klopp. Mm. Um, so uh, oh. that's why he's that's why he's that. Mm. Um, you know, a hat trick. I think a lot of people have been speaking about his finishing for a while. But, I mean, Kartik, you remember the great goal, which convinced me of his finishing, which was the moment when he took it to the back line of City. Um, He swerves one way for Liverpool, swerves the other way, and there's almost like a four or five foot gap that he can slot the ball into. And that's when I knew he was a good finisher. And you think the kid can hold his head. It's just about what he has around him and how he becomes focused by a manager, you know? And I think that, yeah, that's it. And, and in,
2: yeah, in fact, I think I've said it before on the show that part of the reason Pellegrini was so set on signing him and he was the one guy Pellegrini really wanted, the other targets that were signed by City this summer were largely uh, uh, boardroom targets, uh, the De Bruyne's, the etc., uh, was because he had had that kind of success against City. It's not just that goal. He, every time Liverpool played Manchester City, he was the standout player for Liverpool, even more so than Suarez or Sturridge when Sturridge was fit.
1: Mm, yeah, no, good point. Although my my other mentions are obviously uh, Chan, Origi, Kane and Berahino. Mm-hmm. Berahino, just because um, I love how people have so quickly forgotten all the, the farcical stuff that happened <laughs> not long ago. Oh, he's good. Oh, yeah, great. Okay, bye-bye.
0: <laughs> Not even mentioning it at all anymore. No, you, You're right on Sterling. Two of the goals he had this weekend were just really uh, great instinctual goals. One, he was just cleaning up in front of goal, but two of them he really crafted those chances for himself amid um, a very willing defense trying to stop him. Kartik, your player of the week.
2: I'm going to go with uh, Rio Mares, who is just, just this out-of-sight incredible player, particularly when Leicester is behind in games. A uh, player who was with them in the championship has become, I, I think, one of the top African players. Uh, obviously, featuring for for Algeria, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he is just a terror to handle defensively. It, it, you can't you can't mark him one on one. He has these these sorts of trick moves that a lot of wingers have when he cuts inside. But his final product is so much better than your average winger, or not even your average winger, than your other outstanding wingers in, in the English league. I, mean, I, I defended Jesus Navas earlier. But Navas' end product is what, uh, is what City fans, I guess, ultimately get unhappy about. Mares has this ability to bring other players into the game. He has this special connection going with Vardy. And Leicester just have something going on it, 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 that is tough to quantify, right?
0: Yes, Give Claudio tough.
2: Ranieri all kinds of credit for, for, for their results, but they've got something else about them, and, and they're continuing to get results and sneak results out because I think of Mahrez and, and Jamie Vardy.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody has it quite figured out. It's, it's interesting. Riyad Mahrez has turned into kind of a super sub. He's now coming off the bench, and he's still having these great performances. If you want to know a reason why Leicester keeps coming back in games, it's because they're a completely different team when they bring him on. Um, my player of the week was going to be Jamie Vardy after watching that game. Mostly for, in addition to the two goals he scored in the second half, just the number of chances his effort creates, uh, and you compare it to other team players around the league, it's it's incredible, and you, you understand why he's one of the league's best scorers right now. But I ended up changing it because after watching Everton-Manchester United, I came away from that game, just very envious of the potential center back pairing that Roy Hodgson has with John Stones and Chris Smalling. And in this game, Chris Smalling really stood out. He was playing with Phil Jones for the first time this year. At least it was Phil Jones's first start. So Smalling actually moved over to the left, which has been Daily Blind's spot. Uh, and he was his typical, I don't want to say typical because it's not like Chris Smalling has been so dominant for so long that we can say it's typical, but he was always the person making the last play to the point you're watching the game and you're saying, Everton's not going to score. Chris Smalling is always there. I thought it was just a really good performance, and on a weekend where there were a lot of goals, there are always a lot of goals in the Premier League, and uh, not a lot of central defenders stood out, I gave the nod to Chris Smalling on this one. Uh, gentlemen, let's move on a little bit here. Let's talk about the second big managerial debut of the weekend. Uh, I think there was a lot of optimism around Sam Allardyce's debut with Sunderland. They certainly came out and played well at the beginning at the Hawthorns, but a second-half goal means that Sam Allardyce is the latest Sunderland manager to, to lose his debut ahead of a Tyne we Uh Kartik, you are a big... Uh, I don't want to say a big Sam apologist. You're not an apologist at all. You're just you're apt to point out that this person is somebody that does get results and probably gets derided a little bit too much. It was definitely a a mixed bag this weekend, and I think that he's going to be a little remiss for not getting a point out of his debut. What do
1: you mean, he? Sorry, what? That's ridiculous, Richard. He didn't do anything this weekend.
0: (laughs)
2: Well, it was a a difficult uh, place to start, right, playing against uh, West Brom. But at the Hawthorns in in, in, a, in a venue where Tony Pulis is, is good at locking down the game. But I thought there were some some bizarre calls. And quite frankly, I, I was surprised by Big Sam going with Borini and going with Danny Graham uh, at, at points in this game and, and really putting a lot on those two guys who have not uh, produced at all uh, in the Premier League and in quite some time. Borini last produced when he got Sunderland out of trouble under Gus Poirier, uh, when he was on loan from Liverpool two seasons ago. Danny Graham hasn't produced since he was at Swansea. He's another one of those players who, once he left Swansea, uh, his form dropped off. So the long there's a long list of those players. So I was surprised by that. Uh, positive for American fans, DeAndre Yedlin played 90 minutes and looked very good. Look, mm. Looked apart, didn't look out of uh, place at all, like most American players do when they make uh, a Premier League debut or this is the second game for, for Yedlin uh, as a starter. But uh, he looked quite good. So... The time we Derby Darby has been, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more obviously next week, but it has been this trap game for, for Newcastle where Sunderland's managers win over their supporters. I don't, I don't think Big Sam's going to have quite the problems of the previous managers because he is Big Sam. He's English. He played for that club. He knows that club. he came to that club at one point before uh, with Peter Reid. So I think it's a little bit different, but uh, DeCanio he won over the supporters by beating Newcastle. Poyer won over the supporters by beating Newcastle over and over again. And then Advocat beat Newcastle to get out of trouble last season. So, it, it, And it's almost uh, a, an automatic now that Sunderland beats Newcastle. Sunderland's in trouble. Sunderland's looking for a result. They get Newcastle. They beat them. So uh, – that's probably what will happen next week.
0: Lawrence, aside from the kind fixture ahead for Sunderland, did you see anything else from this weekend's performance that should give uh, Blackout supporters reason for hope?
1: It, honestly, I think the thing that I uh, gives them most hope is the way that they played their last game under Avocat. Hmm. Um, and the fact that the players changed so quickly. Um, I'm really interested in, in some of lexicon. One minute he says, <laughs> they. what he'll do is he'll say, they didn't create anything, mm. and then he'll say, "But we defended well." <laughs> and suddenly, you see a lot of the, the way that Sam Allardyce conducts himself out on uh, out in the press. Don't know if it's it's uh, indicative of the man, but I think it definitely uh, says something about the way that he considers himself at Sunderland, the way he considers his role at Sunderland. Mm. Um, I think the positives that can probably be taken away for them is that they they do have options. They have. <sighs> I mean, bringing on Jermaine Defoe when things yeah. aren't working is maybe not the, the way, best way to go, but it <laughs> is a way to go. Um, you'd say the same with Graham and the same with Johnson. You, uh, But like I say, the last game that I saw with Abukat and the way that the players played is probably the biggest boost for them mm-hmm. because... Of, of of the fact that they were just so much better and unfortunate, actually, to lose that game.
0: You alluded to that last game under Avocat, a two, uh, two-goal lead early against West Ham, then a red card... Uh, two goals come back for West Ham, ended up splitting uh, points there. West Ham, another game this weekend, two late goals, only uh, this time at Selhurst Park, Lawrence. Uh, just a game that was ruined by an early, I don't want to say unfortunate red card because Dwight Gale's red card was deserved, but certainly an absent-minded red card and one that capped uh, a very active 20 minutes for Dwight Gale and uh, ultimately probably cost his team at least one, maybe even three points.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you. I suppose someone who was there for the match and they said up until that point it actually felt like a very even game. It was a very exciting um, game, I thought, until that point. Yeah, even yeah, and and I think uh, you know what's uh, probably right to say for both sets of fans is that actually they're both very good judges of um, good footballers, and I think both of them are very complimentary about the other side. So a lot of West Ham fans saying how much they enjoyed Yannick Bellassi Zaha and the effort from Gale until that point. Um, and then the point would be maybe opposite way with how much people enjoyed Lanzini and Payet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what's interesting is we spoke about it on a previous podcast, but maybe just Gale wasn't the striker that they wanted in this game up front <laughs> for Crystal Palace. Um, and for that reason, things had to change. But they, they really do lack a big man up there or someone that can battle a little bit more in a slightly different way. Um, and that's what they lacked in this match because genuinely up until he got sent off, won all and it could have gone either way. Um, and, you know, I think Crystal Palace are going to be diff- disappointed for that reason because they want to be winning these kind of matches. Um, and it's the kind of thing where I, I think especially Alan Pardew will be aware of what might creep into the players' minds and how he will be aware of a repeat of the things that happened at Newcastle for that same reason.
0: Hmm. Karthik, West Ham sits fourth right now, and as Lawrence reminds us, we're still too early to be looking at that table as if it means anything. But I think the th- reason I bring that up is that West Ham is not performing like a team that should be lower. They they are performing like a team that, if they keep this up, are going to challenge for. Spots in Europe maybe troublesome teams for that fourth spot, that last Champions League spot. But I get the feeling when we do our top fours here in a couple minutes, neither, none of us are going to have West Ham in our end of the year top four. So my question to you is, what do we need to see from West Ham in order to get past this kind of early skeptical phase where we look at this as a good start to where we look at this as endemic of the team they actually are?
2: Well, just keep getting these sorts of results and putting in these sorts of performances. The only points they've dropped away from home the entire season is uh – it was, of course, that game that you mentioned, uh, that Lawrence mentioned against Sunderland. They won at Arsenal, they won They won at Anfield, they won at the Etihad, they've now won at Selhurst, which has be- become a very difficult place to play as well. Yeah. Uh, well and, and so they're getting results, they just need to keep it going. This might be a good harbinger for next year, because some people would argue that they're going to play 38 away matches next season with where their new home venue is. Mm. So uh, it's good that they're learning to play away from home, because they're not going to have, uh, I mean, I joke about that, but they're not going to have the sort of home of, uh, of, uh. Home turf advantage that that you have now at the bowling ground at the Olympic Stadium. I think that's pretty obvious to just about everybody. So this is good that they're learning to get results away from home, and that will make them a better team at home next season when they don't have the natural advantage they have right now at Upton Park.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, last match before we turn uh, back to Europe: Southampton two, Leicester two. Lawrence. This was definitely a tale of two halves. Leicester very poor on set pieces in the first half. Saw both Southampton central defender score, and then Southampton just seemed to take take their foot off the grass or gas around the hour mark. If there's one team in the league you don't want to do that with right now, it's Leicester, two goals from Jamie Vardy, Riyad Mahrez coming on, helping change the game. Uh, I I hate to throw this to you with kind of a, well, what did we learn from this? But is, is there a point at which we learn why Leicester has become this team that almost needs to fall behind in order to get into gear? Uh,
1: I I mean, is it to some extent the underdog mentality with, which you'd imagine that Ranieri's maybe working with the players. Um, From that reason, though, you'd maybe say, well, you know, why aren't they then battling from the very beginning if they feel like they're always behind? Mm. Um, I think it it must be difficult to balance that because with the wins comes a change in mentality. Um, And you sort of think, well, how do you plan for players basically becoming more and more confident when actually originally... Um, you know, you would have wondered what their league position would be, but then he says he's always planned to be up this season. So it was never about battling relegation, but it was also never about getting too high. So I, I wonder whether it's just about striking the right balance, and actually that it swings one way and then swings the back. Um, mm. And maybe that's a little bit too neat for what we're trying to describe, because actually, some uh, Leicester don't have like a very neat team at times. <laughs> um, but what, what I do find interesting about them is the players that are playing well. Um, under Ranieri i have got some very similar qualities but from different backgrounds and so you see where Ranieri is good at working with certain kinds of players and certain kinds of mentalities um, and I think that's all built upon a very, I mean look at that back line and how solid that has the potential to be um, and then look at also how quickly it was undone mm-hmm. what you would say is that, that look at the statistics in this match and Southampton were dominated in terms of possession they, they, you know, they only have 43% possession for a side that would expect to do better. They had less shots, um, they had less corners, you know, they had less free kicks, all those kind of things. And you think they should be dominating these kind of games against a team like Leicester, but they didn't. So you've got to wonder how, how and why did they let them back in? And I think that's partly down to the mentality employed.
0: It might be a little bit to injury too. Southampton had two injuries in this game. Uh, Cedric with a very bad cut over his left eye eventually left the game. Vincent Wanyama left the game too. Uh, the defense fell apart after that, after Maya Ishida came in, after they had to bring Jordi Classi in off the bench to augment that middle. Uh, but Kartik, Lawrence mentioned that defense for Leicester, and I, I agree with him. You have Robert Huth. Uh, Wes Morgan back there, uh, you have a good goalkeeper, you've got decent people in the middle. They shouldn't be giving up as many goals as they do. But it's not only that they're giving up goals as a function of kind of a give and take in their style of play. This weekend, it was just they couldn't defend set pieces. And before we've just seen them kind of get the basics wrong. And how, how worried should Fox's supporters be about that?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, we keep focusing on these comebacks, or at least I do, and and Maras and Vardy and how good those guys are going forward, and, and Drinkwater when he supplements the attack, et, et cetera. But they uh, they are con- continuing to ship goals in kind of curious ways. They they seem to be torn apart very easily uh, early in matches. So this is uh, this is really kind of uh, a big question because on paper it looks like it's a solid solid back line. Um, I, I don't really have an explanation other than other than to say that they're they' they're not starting games well and they're getting they're getting pulled pulled apart and they don't necessarily have the kind of ball winning presence in midfield uh holding midfield that that perhaps uh, uh you, you would like to see from from this sort of team and and they don't have the guy that keeps them organized in Cambiaso uh playing in kind of a central mm-hmm. midfield withdrawn midfield role that that they had last season so maybe th- those are um the reasons.
0: A very interesting team, though, for all their flaws and all their achievements so far. Uh, Leicester continues week in, week out to be worth worth your money. You're worth your cable subscription money. Uh, let's jump back to Europe for a bit, to Spain, where there were a couple of big games, uh, neither of which involved Barcelona or Real Madrid. Both of those titans won by three goals at home, and they're tied for the league lead right now. But it's a three-way tie with Celta Vigo, who handed Villarreal the previous leaders their second straight loss. Again, the yellow submarine had an early sending off just as they had before the break in their first loss of the season. This time, though, they didn't pay for it until near the final whistle when Nolito gave Kelta a 2-1 win. They're even with Barca and El Real, all three teams passing Villarreal this weekend. Elsewhere, David Moyes' hot seat is going to heat up a little more after Real Sociedad lost at home today, 2-0 to Atletico. La Real finished with nine men but played 89 minutes with 11, an early goal from Antoine Griezmann had Atleti up almost the whole game. Atletico, like Villarreal, is only two points off the top. Quickly, uh, in France, PSG won again 2-0 at Bastia. Zlatan Ibrahimovic scored both goals. He's already up to 6 after a very slow start to the season, and the Parisians are 5 points clear at the top of Ligue 1. The league's biggest game, however, happened on Friday when Lyon went to Monaco for for what I'm sure was a well-attended game on Friday night at the Stade louis Uh <laughs> Former Manchester United fullback Rafael da Silva scored in the 84th minute to give Lyon a 1-1 draw there. Uh, gentlemen, let's go back to the Premier League. It's time for our top 4s, and a I'll go ahead and short straw it this week and go first uh, on form. You know we're, we are getting to the point for, where for me the form kind of matches the end of the year a little bit. I, I have City, Arsenal, United, and West Ham as my four on form. And as far as end of the year, no changes for me right now. I still see City. United-Arsenal, I kind of flip flop those in my mind. I'm really close to believing in this Arsenal team, though, and putting them number two. And then I have Spurs, but I still see City as being the team that's going to claim this title. For, for the reason we said earlier in the show, no team is matching City's heights. And when they're healthy, uh, if they ever do get fully healthy, uh, I just don't see them stumbling. Kartik?
2: Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. First time this season where the top four that I have are the same. Top four I have at the end of the season, not in the same order at all, actually, but uh, same same clubs. So my on form, I've got Spurs one; they still haven't lost since the opening day of the season. Arsenal two, City three, United four. Uh, end of the season, City one, Arsenal two, United three, Spurs four.
1: Lawrence, uh, yeah, I'm going to match you both, both you guys up. But what I'm going to say is, end of the year, I think is either Spurs or Liverpool in fourth spot. Yeah,
0: that's that's me too. I as much as I want to talk up West Ham or even Crystal Palace, I still. I still think of Spurs and Liverpool, and I get the feel like within two or three weeks, Klopp is going to have me convinced to shake up that top four. Um, gentlemen, there's one big team we haven't mentioned yet in the show. It, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually feel wrong. It kind of feels like this is where Chelsea should be right now. And uh, yep. I, don't, I don't want to diminish, uh, what was a, a big win for them. I mean, at this point, any win is big and they're back from the yeah. bottom of the table to mid-table, but Lawrence, 2-0 victory over Aston Villa, number of changes Jose Mourinho made. When I was watching that game, I just kind of felt like this is pretty much what we should expect. No big deal.
1: Yeah. So this was a great podcast, guys. Uh, I think we'll <laughs> do the same next week. Should we just convene about 8 o'clock? Sure. <laughs> what's, your, what's your problem? I don't think there's much more to add, right, Richard? I mean, no, they didn't.
2: Don't they don't didn't play that. well. No. Chelsea did not play well in this game. Villa, I thought, were the better team. Uh, Brad Guzan, absolute howler, uh, or, or if you can call a, a bad clearance or <laughs> a bad uh, his his his, his, month,
0: his monthly mistake.
2: Yeah, his monthly mistake, and then uh, Costa, nice goal. But uh, the second half, I thought Villa were the better team. Yeah. I, I was actually kind of stunned how poorly Chelsea came out. I thought, okay, Mourinho says he has all the players behind him. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I was wrong. We're going to see a response and they looked flat at the bridge and Villa, the team that is probably the worst team in the league at this point. looked I thought much better than they did for the 90 minutes. So I'm unconvinced completely by this. And and I think Mourinho is just running out the clock now on his own tenure.
1: There are sort of, there are sort of unusual things that go with this one. I've been reading the possession stats quite a lot this week. I don't know why. I just found them interesting. Villa have more possession than Chelsea. Um, and more. Ooh, I didn't even realize that. Ooh, yeah, that, that I knew. That I knew. yeah. Um, and the and that's the that that's one of the interesting sides. But then, I mean, it is also that uh, then there have to be things that I think you should applaud. Um, Aspiraqueta is finally uh, in in the right berth for the side, mm-hmm. although that's probably enforced because of injury. Um, Another thing, uh, Zuma is obviously starting there, which I quite like. Baba Rahman, obviously, and then Loftus Cheek in midfield as well, even though Loftus Cheek only played the 45 and the Mandamatic came on and also had a reasonably comfortable performance. What you would say is the reason that this performance changed for Chelsea was down to the introduction of Azad. So, I, you know, everything that I think it looked as if Mourinho was setting out to prove, he then almost disproved. <laughs> so, I, I but then again there's then there's the great meta that everyone says where it's like well is he then making the point i can't do it with these players to Mm. whoever he's trying to make the point to that's... And at that point, you kind of say, well, you know, you what, spot, what you players does he want?
0: I
2: mean, what, what players is he expecting? Does he think he's getting Tomas Muller or getting uh, Lewandowski or, or Ronaldo? I mean, who does he? I mean, but, this is ridiculous. And look but, at their but, squad.
1: But that's part of it, Kartik, I think, is that actually Mourinho is very good at making temporary things feel very permanent. And this, the point is that form would be temporary but the class of most of these players will remain permanent. Hence why when De Bruyne goes away from the club, then his class shines through. When other players have gone away, they've they probably play better because the temporality of what Mourinho says of his players sticks around. And it, I think a lot of people speak about that in the moment in London. is There's the, almost like a haze around the club, because, but it's a haze of negativity. And right. that sticks around and sticks with the players. And at times that is really detrimental to the club. But he, it feels – when you're in that, it feels so perma- – we've all worked in a workplace like that where it feels so sort of negative and that permanent – that negativity feels permanent until someone comes along and sort of goes, oh, we should probably change this. And And, and the good news, one of the great things about Jurgen Klopp coming to the Premier League and taking uh, the
2: high-profile Liverpool job, which we know a lot of uh, of the media support Liverpool anyway, is that I think they're going to pay less attention to this clown at Chelsea. And he's not going to get the kind of enablement he's gotten in the past because there's another really high-profile, colourful interesting and exciting manager in the league and they don't have to suck up to this guy constantly so that's very good news I think for all of us and as Jose
0: Mourinho takes himself a little bit out of the sack race Tim Sherwood seems to be the person that everybody's focusing on now especially with Brendan Rodgers now available and already links between him and Aston Villa Newcastle 6-2 was the last result of the weekend that we haven't talked about Giorgino uh, Wijnaldum four goals there Kartik really it felt like a must win for Steve McLaren not in the sense that uh, he was going to be sacked at the end of it, but there would be no reason not to talk about him as if he wouldn't be sacked. Um, so in in that way, very positive result. And at the same time, this was the worst we've seen Norwich play all year.
2: Yeah, I mean, Norwich has been so solid and so strong this season. And, and, and since... Uh... Alex Neal took over last season in the championship. Remember, they were uh, they were struggling the first half of the championship season. They were the best team in the championship the second half of the year and had started this Premier League season so brightly. So I guess this was the type of result, given that Newcastle needed the game, you, you, you probably should have expected. Uh, 6-2 is emphatic, uh, but uh, Norwich created chances, but defensively they were very poor. They should have gotten a third or fourth goal, hit the post a couple times. Uh, Nathan Redmond continues to be one of the better and most underappreciated English players in the Premier League uh, for, for Norwich. But I thought Newcastle were very good. And again, I thought they were pretty good for about 40 minutes against Man City. I thought they were good against Chelsea and got very unlucky and should have won that game. So I think McLaren is getting the buy-in from the players. I mean, they've, they, they brought in a lot of players. They've got some very uh, expensive and high-profile players, uh, most of whom produced today. And as long as they can keep... Uh, sissoko pleased and 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 kind of hungry although i i was concerned about his defensive work rate today quite honestly but he was very good going forward they uh they'll get out of this because they have enough talent and uh, there are other teams that are, are are worse that having been said they play Sunderland next week and as i said the Tyne Weir Darby the last few years has been where the new Sunderland manager has always made their mark, beating the uh, local rivals, so I expect Sunderland to win just because that's the way it's been going. That's not an indictment of Newcastle.
0: Monday's game closing the weekend of the Premier League. Swansea is hoping hosting Stoke. Um, a lot of people are already looking forward to the Champions League games this week. On Tuesday, Bayern Munich versus Arsenal. Uh, Chelsea is at Dinamo Kiev. Kind of a trap game there for Chelsea if they're not on their game. That's definitely losable considering the form that we've seen from them this year. But obviously, most people are going to be focusing on Arsenal versus Bayern Munich. Lawrence, I, I look at this game and I think this is a great example of how we sometimes exaggerate the differences between teams because Arsenal is going to be looked as, at as this huge underdog in this game, which perhaps when you look at the numbers is true. We've seen Arsenal over 60, 90-minute spans over the last few years compete with the Barcelonas and Bayern Munichs of the world. And if we were to have these two teams in one league together, if Arsenal were in the Bundesliga, we would say, well, this is a tough game for Bayern because Arsenal is a Champions League-caliber team and you never know what can happen in one game. And I think that logic still holds. You never know what can happen in one game, but when we see these two teams match up against each other so infrequently, there's this tendency to exaggerate the difference in quality between the two.
1: Absolutely. Um, I I agree with the theory, but then you think an application... uh... That exaggeration maybe plays into certain things um, and the the differences maybe highlight some of the reasons why the, the difference between the two. So that counter-environment is going to mean that Arsenal are portrayed as the inferior club. Maybe it means they play up to it. Maybe it means they play down to it.
0: <laughs> um, you never know with Arsenal. That's as we always say on the show.
1: Well, I guess that's part of the frustration with them, isn't it? Is that actually... I, I mean, uh, if, there's, if there's one thing we can take from the week of Jurgen Klopp focus... It's that I want to turn Liverpool from doubters to believers, and how much of a difference that made to the club in mm. one week. Mm. And if you were, and I said this to an Arsenal fan earlier, imagine if if Jurgen Klopp had just taken over at Arsenal, what would we be thinking and saying now? <laughs> we, a couple of us might have Arsenal as number one on our end <laughs> of season list. <laughs> So, I, think right. we, I think we would, yeah. but so yeah. no, so then this is that. And think of that tiny difference. But yeah. then I guess that the, the disrespect that comes from that would be that we're not applying the good things. It's like, exactly like I was saying. If mm. we'd have had Brendan Rogers go out to the pitch, it would have been Brendan looked out. What a disparaging look on his face he had towards the the Anfield turf when clock goes out. It's he surveyed every blade of grass lovingly, <laughs> and you sort of think. You know, there's a huge difference between the two, but actually, the two managers are of the same calibre and doing. You know, obviously, they're looking to achieve different things in different ways, but it's very much about the perception from the outside, and I think sometimes that gets in the way of the analysis. And the like you say, the analysis here would be the two are very close, but there are small factors which would mean that Bayern Munich have probably got the upper hand here, and it's those small factors I think that and the, the attention to detail that has taken Guardiola and this Bayern Munich side the step further hmm.
0: on Wednesday Manchester United is going to be in Moscow to take on Seska Manchester City is hosting Sevilla uh, with all of these games this week they're the first of two match sets the reverse are going to happen in a couple of weeks in Champions League but Karthik, the big game is happening on Tuesday so I want to go back to it Arsenal Bayern we're all very familiar with these teams at this point what are you expecting out of the game on Tuesday at the Emirates?
2: Oh, I think uh, Arsenal has a great chance the way they're playing. Uh, Of course, we we talked about the letdown in this last game, but I I think they've got a real opportunity to win this game. Uh, Bayern has not lost yet this season. Uh, They've they've been bailed out in a couple games, have gotten fortunate, but they've been been playing at a very, very high level, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately where I sit, I think there is a real possibility that uh, they can be caught they're, they're, they've got a, a game coming where they're not going to fire on all cylinders. And I think Arsenal, because of the way their camp, Champions League campaign has started and the doubts, uh, look, their league form has been very good, but I think we're, we're, we're extrapolating their poor performances in Champions League. And I know about this because we've all, I've, I've tended to see this happen with Manchester City for years where the poor performances in Champions League were then used by, by media and a- analysts to say, well, they're really not that strong in the league, but it, it really wouldn't affect Manchester City's league form. There would never be this kind of bleed-on effect. And Arsenal has clearly shown they don't have the bleed-on effect. Lost Olympiacos, uh, turn around and, and, and crushed Manchester United. I think that there's been this narrative about their league campaign, partly influenced by what's happened in champions league. If they get a result in this game, even if it's a draw, I think it changes all of, uh, all of the thinking about arsenal, this fatalistic thinking. And there's a lot of fatalism always among arsenal supporters and among the media when it comes to covering arsenal. So I, I think they have a good shot in this match. Lewandowski uh, Lewandowski's not going to, uh, he cooled off this weekend coming off of uh, his, his great performances with Poland. And I think, uh, maybe uh arsenal will figure them out
0: as you mentioned this is a a back against the wall game for arsenal having taken zero points in two of their easier games in this group now they have their two most difficult games coming up over the next fortnight or a couple of weeks uh that's what a fortnight is richard uh they have to really get three points They, they really have to get three points in this one even a draw would probably see their uh chances of advancing go out the window um we're, we're going to be back next week. We'll probably talk a little bit about what happened in Champions League, but mostly we're going to be focusing on the 10th match day of the Premier League season. But until then, for Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik?
2: Enjoy your football.
0: The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show... Check us out at worldsoccertalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley.